we had a lot of pilots with mountain rescue experience, fixed line experience, engineers, guys that have worked with this stuff for, for the last 10, 15 years. And we all sort of got together and said, look, what do we, what do we want to see? You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. G'day, this is episode 92 of the Rotary Wing Show. Today we're taking a, a deep dive into human external cargo. We touched on this a little bit in the last episode on powerline operations with David Nicole. This time we'll look at some of the backstory in Canada around their human external cargo requirements and how that drove a search for equipment solutions. As a w- quick recap, human external load or HEC as it is abbreviated, is using the helicopter belly hook and an attached line with one or more people hooked onto the bottom of it, just like you would for any other sling task. Just instead of carrying a cargo net or a bucket, it's it's people. Joining us today, I am very grateful to have help from Jeff Yarnold. Jeff hails from the west coast of Canada in British Columbia. He is the VP of Operations at Boost Human External Cargo Systems which is a company that he and his business partner started. Jeff goes into the backstory of the company shortly. Jeff has also clocked up 23 years working with North Shore Search and Rescue in Vancouver, where he's been a search manager, air operations coordinator, and helicopter rescue technician. North Shore Search and Rescue is an interesting organization. I'm reading from their, their website, a mountain search and rescue team based in Vancouver, team consists of approximately 50 volunteers skilled in search and rescue operations in mountain, canyon, and urban settings. It looks like they operate on a call-out system 24-7, and it was established back in 1965. They don't actually have any helicopter assets themselves, but work with the local helicopter companies as crew to conduct their rescues. They have a number of educational articles on their website for adventure sports type people heading out into the British Columbia mountains. What I liked is the very first one you come across, it's called uh, Avoid Getting Lost, which I guess is the first step to not needing these guys. So big shout out to the gang there in Vancouver. That's some great work that you are, are doing. Let's get into it. This is Jeff Yarnold talking about how he found himself going from hanging under helicopters to designing the equipment that allows you to do it. Yeah, I mean, I guess the way that this got started was pretty crazy, to be honest. You know, my background came from a mountain rescue background with North Shore Search and Rescue. And I probably joined that rescue team about 20 years ago. And and outside of Parks Canada here, they were one of the busiest longline rescue teams in the in the country. Well, should and, we, I guess uh, we should yeah, dial in on that. So it's so a North Shore... So- so where geographically is that in Canada? Well, so this would be uh, Vancouver, British yep. Columbia. We're right on the West Coast and we've got about three and a half million people sitting right at the foot of the mountains here. And it just seems like everybody from the city thinks they're going for a walk in the park and they head off into the mountains. 
they, they tend to need rescuing. There's not many places for the aircraft to land back there. So longline rescue is, is, you know, probably the, the main method of rescuing sure. uh, people here in our mountains is, uh, is a fixed line system. And, you know, it's great. We, we've been traveling uh, all around the world, actually, and, and working with many different groups. But the funny thing is, 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 you know, you go to Europe and they think they invented longline rescue and you go to the States and they think they invented it. And here in Canada, you know, our guys think they invented it. And it's, it's funny because it all sort of started back around in the, in the fifties and everybody's pretty much correct. You know, they, they, they had their own version of, of the longline rescue technique and it's pretty, pretty interesting. But in Canada, uh, the big thing was that, you know, nobody wanted to fly in a cargo hook, right? If, if you can't land the aircraft, you got to put a fixed line on putting the line just on the cargo hook itself is, you know, we're, we're exposing ourselves to inadvertent releases and, and it's, you know, it's definitely not ideal, but uh, we in Canada started using a belly band back in, uh, in, I guess the late nineties. It basically provides a backup for the cargo hook so that if, if there's a failure on that cargo hook, the load will transfer to this belt essentially that's put around the belly of, of the aircraft. And it'll it'll save that load from you know, hitting the ground. We all use that in Canada. Like that was the the sort of the the main system was this this belly band system. But in 2012 here in Canada, uh, Transfer Canada grounded that system due to a, a bunch of issues with certification, manufacturing, um, life limits. There was a bunch of issues there that, that Transfer picked up on and. We were all grounded across the whole country and everybody was up in arms about it and trying to fight it and, and allow it to continue to be used just because it's, you know, it's a life-saving tool that, you know, we felt that the public was going to be at risk by not having something available. And so transfer told us that we had to go find something else that, that, you know, was approved. And so from North Shore rescue perspective, I was, we had a lot of pilots with mountain rescue experience fixed line experience, engineers, guys that have worked with this stuff for, for the last 10, 15 years. And we all sort of got together and said, look, what do we, what do we want to see? We just sort of sat around under the machine, spitballing and a bunch of goofy ideas. We probably had nine different prototypes before we settled on the one that, that we're on now for the, the AS350 and 355. But we really took everybody's input. It wasn't just uh, Derek and I saying, "Hey, this is what this is the next system." It was just just everybody uh, contributing, and we were lucky to have sort of that uh, that wealth of knowledge. But yeah, I mean, you hire you hire a, a design approval representative here in Canada, which is you know an engineer that's been uh, you know represents the Minister of Transport really, and and he works directly with Transport Canada submitting all these. These approvals for the STCs and they're cheap, aren't they? We, we, yeah, they're cheap. They're very cheap <laughs> and they're very efficient. <laughs> yeah, that you know, and that's the real hard part is that's where you lose control of these projects. Is you, you know, it's all it's all great to sit down and try and put a budget on paper, but you might as well light it on fire because it's it's not worth the paper it's written on, and uh, you know it's. It's nobody's fault. It's just you, you, often you're into the unknown, right? I mean, you're, you're doing stuff that nobody's done before and someone will give you a guess at how long they think it's going to take, but 
all it is is a guess. So, um, can you tell us about some of the designs that that didn't make the cut? So, so what were some of the what were some of the iterations that you had that you had to sort of scrap? I mean, you start like often we're we're working with a swing cage, right? So that's a challenge because you've got a hook that's moving around under there. Uh, We looked at, at trying to put two hooks inside that cage. That wouldn't work because the hooks are hooks are banging together. That was kind of a, a non-starter. Uh, the next thing is working with that CAG, you know, on that aircraft is is tough, right? And and with the hook on the cage, it, it allows it to sort of sit quite close to the the CG under the mast there. But the structure, you, you're lacking structure anywhere else other than where the, the cage is mounted. Then we ended up near the front cross tube, and that seemed to be the best sort of the best point. I mean, we looked at the aft cross tube. It wasn't working out with CG. We go to the forward cross tube. We found a little bit of structure there. Our 1,100 pounds was was working out with CG. And but then it's you've got shared hardware. You know, the swing cage mounts to that forward cross tube as well. So we kind of had a goofy goofy beam design came up at, at the beginning that we just couldn't get the loads on it. Like with the HEC safety factors, like we end up easily. Uh, we're over we're over 10 times the load so if we're talking an 1100 pound load on our system often we're approving that load to 10 or 12 times what that that limit is so you know we're up at we're over 10,000 pounds how do you so test that do you have that, like a hydraulic ram oh. or something or other what's the process <laughs> yeah you know and it it started out very rudimentary i mean uh you have the engineers that do all their calculations and they can run a bunch of computer modeling. The lines and stuff, we can pull the failure. I mean, we, you know, we use a, our long lines are 32,000 pound braking strength on our lines, but that, you know, that gets knocked down to, to an 11 or well, 1300 pound load limit on these soft goods, but that gives you 10 years, right? So starting, we're basically starting the line that breaks at, at 30,000 pounds and you end up down to, to a 1300 pound load limit but you know on the aircraft we try not to break parts right so it's uh a lot of that's done by by analysis and we can do you know and then of course the flight test right i mean the, the aircraft gets flown through its whole flight flight envelope it it typically ends up being uh analysis right when we get into the aircraft and and of course you get support from from airbus and bell and and we've got you know good engineers from from the aircraft manufacturer that are uh, supporting us with with data also on airframe calculations and stuff like that. So I'm trying to picture, and I guess I'm cheating because I've seen some of the photos and that, but if we were to visually describe it as someone who's never never seen this, you would have essentially the, the line underneath the helicopter would be attached to the, the belly hook, say on the, on the A-star or the squirrel. And from that, you would have... Uh, I guess it's not so much a second line, but it, it, the line would split and run to the to the front uh, cross tube and be attached with a second hook underneath the, the front cross tube. Is that kind of the visual description? 100%. That's right. Is, is you got the aircraft cargo hook, then we install our, our second hook that sits forward at the cross tube, and then we have a Y-lander, we call it, that would, that would bring those two hooks down to a single point. And that's where the long line would connect there. So you basically could have a failure on, on either hook and the load would just transfer to the to that other hook. We're probably getting really in the details here, but this is 
you know, I guess for this audience, do you do two center of gravity or, or weight and balance calculations before you go? So you do one with the, the main weight on, on the hook, uh, and then you do a second one from the, the cross tube in case you have to to, to tr trigger that hook? Yeah, you know, I, I think that the weight and balance to be calculated with the worst case scenario, right, would be the 1,100 pound loads on our forward hook. And, you know, I mean, that's all provided. I mean, we, we provide the operator with all the, the weight balance info. And yeah, pilot's got to calculate that worst case scenario, right? Yeah, and, you know, when it's centered on the cargo hook, that there's no issue, but that moving forward at 1100 pounds, that's where you want to make sure that you're still inside it. Yeah. I mean, that comes down to the, the pilot obviously, right. And, and not always could it be 1100 pounds either. Right. I mean, sometimes 1100 pounds is, is too much based on, on the day in the aircraft. Yep. No dramas. Training for pilots to go and do this. So if you talk someone who has sufficient experience on, on whatever the aircraft type is, and they've done long lining before, is there anything different than what's the, the training program for someone to then be ticked up to be able to do HEC with, with this equipment? That's an interesting one. Uh, in, in Canada, our requirement, like our legal requirement for a pilot uh, to be able to do HEC operations is, is 2,000 hours. But when there's like 100-hour mountain flying and maybe it's it's 25 on type or something, it's, uh, don't quote me on the type uh, requirement, but it's crazy because there's no requirement for vertical reference or, or external load time. So you could have someone who's never flown external load in their life, but they've got the 2,000 hours. Well, now they meet the requirement to go and do HEC work. The Europeans have got a great model and flow chart on how you you take a you know a, a new pilot and per, and and how they progress through external load operations and into HEC or, or hoist operations. And they start out with shorter lines, lower altitudes. And as you build up a certain amount of hours there, you progress through and now you get a longer line, you can work at higher altitudes and you progress that way. And it's, it's an awesome flow chart actually. In Canada, it's this, we just have this 2000 hour requirement, but I think most often here, the pilots uh, are coming from an external low background. You know, I mean, to, to be flying helicopters here in, uh, in our of the woods, you pretty much have to be competent at vertical reference and external load operations. If we have pilots that are trying to get into HEC, which is what is now happening without any external load operations, well, we got to go back to square one. Like we're not talking about training you for HEC. We're talking about training you in vertical reference and external load work. And until you can show that you're competent in just basic external load operations, well, we're not even, we're not even getting to the HEC point yet. So um, does that make sense? Yeah. So, okay. So let's say the, the person's done external load and, and vertical reference. Mm -hmm. Is it then just purely a, an hours minimum or is there a, a training component in terms of they need to be signed up for, for HEC and, and is there a, a structured kind of syllabus? So, I mean, we build, you know, we've got our own training syllabus here that, that we'll travel around and work with different operators. Uh, Transfer Canada here requires that 
you know, it's it's uh, class D or or human external cargo operations are, are approved in the company's operations manual. So, I mean, that's sort of the first step. And then we come out and work with these pilots and crews, but often there's not a big shift, you know, from, from a pilot who, who can do precision long line work with, with basic cargo, uh, quite often to get people on the end of that line, there's not really a change in, in how they're operating. It's just that the load actually talks to you now. And often the crews, if, if the crews can provide sort of heights and, and information to the pilot that is, is useful, uh, sometimes we've got crews that are actually providing heights and information to the pilot that's not useful. Yes. So the pilot will, uh, you know, often he'll just be, he'll be listening, but he's kind of tuning that out, you know, and guys are calling him 50 feet off the ground and he knows, you know, he's 10 feet. Uh, that's sort of the pilot just processing all this information, but you know, you just, uh, you fly by the, the pitch of their voice. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The pitch gets a little higher as they get closer. The rate of descent is faster, but, um, no, you know, I think that, uh, most of the pilots you come across, it's, it's an easy transition. If, if you're competent, uh, with external load, switching to human cargo is, there's really no difference. If, if you can fly a, you know, precision load uh, of cargo, well, it's the same when we're flying people. But there is a little bit of a, a mind game that happens. And we've come across this a few times where you do have a, an, a, an amazing uh, vertical reference pilot who can sling, sling cargo uh, very precisely. But once you get a human on the end of the line, it can throw that right out of whack. <laughs> And guys get almost like too slow, uh, too cautious, you know, load starts moving around yet. You see them fly a, you know, a load of sand or a bucket and it's like bang on. But the minute we put people on the end, that same pilot starts to, um, almost be, you know, (laughs) too cautious. And that can, that can affect how they're, they're flying. And, and, and sometimes pilots will get over that. You know, we just work a very simple terrain. I mean, open, uh, open field with some reference around the outside, so that can they can still have some reference there, but not a lot of obstacles. And we can just move loads back and forth. And you realize, hey, this is actually this is what I'm good at. It's the same as as flying a, a bag of sand or load of lumber, um, a drill. But there are other pilots that we 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 try that, and it's just too much of a a mind game, I think, right? And and it's funny because it's given me my training of flying. It's it's given me um, that sort of awareness where it's like, you know what? Some pilots like myself should probably just never <laughs> fly in the load. Oh, look, yeah. I've only, I've only done it on two occasions, and, and again, I couldn't see underneath, so we had crew calling everything out for us. But I know exactly mm-hmm. what you're talking about because the whole time you're flying, it's it uh, not being used to it. Yeah, it did feel very, very different having someone underneath the helicopter rather than a, than a you know, a fuel blizzard or something yeah. like that. So it's yeah, that's right. Yeah, you mentioned Jeff the, the comms. So how do you talk to the people on the end of the line? What's the what's the setup there? Yeah, I mean we'll have a VHF radio, yeah. and uh, guys will you know they'll run a headset with a push to talk on it, or some guys will run a, a voice activated uh, intercom. Now, you know the comms. It's a great question because comms just keep changing and, 
you know, we, we keep trying to improve comms. Uh, it's funny in the training, we just really try and beat in the communications and, and that's a requirement, you know, from the FAA and, and Transfer Canada that you do have direct radio communications, but more often than not, we find during, during basic operations here or standard, maybe not basic, but there's not a lot of talk. It's more hand signals. It's head signals. You know, I mean, the guys want to come down. Uh, you know, they're shaking their head, right? And the pilot's watching. They can see him shaking their head. They stop shaking their head. He, he holds, right? They start nodding and they come up. But, you know, we, we really beat in the communications because I think when things go sideways or or something's out of the norm, well, that's when you need to be able to communicate what, what the issue is. And uh, it's... Yeah, I think things are going well. You, you see quite very, very basic hand signals or head signals. Uh, sometimes, you know, we watch linemen going to work. They don't even do anything because these pilots are, pilots can be so in tune with what the guy in the end of the line actually needs that there's no communication. They have that ability, you know, they have the radio, but it's, it's not being used because these guys are just doing it together so much. It's like the pilot could could be alignment because he he knows exactly what these guys are doing but when things go sideways that's that's when you need to be able to talk in the aircraft with your system in when you're in the pilot seat what do you see mm-hmm. in terms of the switches levers and things like that how's, how's it different to a yeah you know, a, an aircraft without the setup so i mean it's pretty it's it's almost the same except you know we've added a second hook so we needed to add the controls for that second hook. And it's it's a hydraulic and an electric hook. The big thing was for us to be able to put these controls on the primary flight controls so that in an emergency, uh, if, if this line had to be jettisoned, I mean, you could think of a snag. I mean, you could think of, of the crew being off the line, but now the line's become entangled. Uh, it's an empty line. And the pilot wants to get rid of that thing as fast as they can. You don't want to have to take your hands off off the controls to do that. So we have a hydraulic release that's right on the cyclic, uh, right in front of the grip, and it's it's a hydraulic lever very similar to the hydraulic cargo release, except it's a protected release. So it's it's got a dual activation on it. So you know, with the back of your hand, you would push the safety out of the way, that would unlock it, and then you would just squeeze the hydraulic lever, and that would release the HEC hook. And then the um, cargo hook is a standard uh, standard release on the cargo hook, so there's no change. And then we'd have an electrical backup uh, as well in the cockpit that uh, if there was a hydraulic failure, you'd have to use the electrical backup. And, and that has got a bit of flexibility in, in the cockpit where it's positioned, but it's just a Vivisun uh, lift and, and push protected switch on it. This gear, is it a, a permanent fit to the aircraft? So you'd, you'd bring an aircraft in and you'd, you'd set that up and then the aircraft would fly away, do its other tasking, mm-hmm. and it's, it's permanently set up like mm-hmm. that? Or is this something you can install before you actually go and do a job? Yeah, so I mean, that's that's where we all came from, was using the, the belly band that was fully portable. And so that's what we tried to, to come up with originally was a, a fully portable system. And it just wasn't possible to do a, a dual hook system that that's fully portable wasn't possible. But, but what we did do is we made sort of the, the hook 
part of the system, fully portable and, and installed by the elementary task. But, but that requires some basic fixed provisions to be put in the aircraft. So, I mean, we run some hydraulic lines, electrical lines in the belly. We've got a, a couple little structural clevises that sit there that are, are ready for the beam and the hook to be mounted. And uh, then we've got the hydraulic and electrical release in the cockpit as well. So, I mean, the systems on different types, they sort of vary a little bit, but that's kind of the, the main principle of, of our stuff is that we, we have some portability. So sort of the, the more costly components, those can be, be uh, portable amongst the fleet, right? Uh, but the aircraft does have some basic fixed provisions in it. On, I know the different aircraft might differ a little bit, but say on a A-Star or the, the 350, what is the, the weight of the system, if you, if you know the, the setup? What is the weight of the system? Yeah. So, you know, the uh, it's funny. I'd have to actually look at the, uh, the install yeah, document right. exactly. But, but, but the basic, basic fixed provisions, we're probably adding eight, eight or nine pounds. And then the portable beam and hook would be about 15 pounds. Yeah, gotcha. So, you know, and it's so funny because we get this question all the time. This is the crazy thing too, right? Is that, that when you talk about these belly bands or, or portable safety devices, as the FAA calls them, uh, often a crew member was required to, to be positioned in the aircraft. In the event of emergency, they could release the belly band or the portable safety device. So, so that was a, an essential crew uh, position uh, by us putting the dual hook on and giving the pilot full control uh, that position is no longer required so so there's a very easy weight savings right there by eliminating that essential crew person but you know we've seen that even here in Canada where that was the role was was to release the belly band in emergency that was your that was your job but that that role became a spotter role. So, you know, it was an extra set of eyes in the aircraft, somebody watching the load, you know, and we've seen that sort of, some operations have, have adopted that and that's still how they fly. If they're doing external load operations or human external operations, is they would put a spotter in the aircraft that is, that, that's watching that load all the time. That's sort of a hot debate as well, you know, and, and some operations, uh, you know, require it. Others don't. Some like it. Some don't. Sure. But we've given the option, so it's 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 no longer required. It's an option. What does the pre-flight inspection on the gear look like? Is it pretty much just the same as you would use for the normal belly hook? Yeah. Well, that's right. Except you do it twice. So I mean, you run through your normal uh, cargo hook check, and then we do the HEC check, which would uh, consist of, of doing the hydraulic check on it, and then the electrical check. And then of course, just regular condition of, of all sort of connections. But yeah, it's, it's basically you're doing your cargo hook check um, times two. And where are you at at the moment in terms of different aircraft types and approvals, I guess, jurisdictions? It's one of those things, like when we got started here, like I told you, it was out of necessity really for our own rescue team. And Derek and I, we, we weren't businessmen really. We were just a couple guys <laughs> busy doing rescues and we didn't have equipment. So, so we ended up doing the, the A-Star Twin Star, you know, and that got done. And then our Parks Canada guys here, they were running 407s and they were like, look, we need, we need equipment as well, but we can't switch till you guys do the 407. So then we went, we did the 407. Uh, that kind of took off. 
the 206L came after that. And then maybe we approved a bunch of our long lines and harnesses and everything on the, the EC135. And then we did the MD500. Uh, now we just finished the 212, 412. And uh, we're working uh, with Airwork New Zealand on the BK117. So it's, you know, the, it's one of these things that it just never stops. And I kind of wish it, it would. <laughs> these, these certification projects are so stressful. When they're done, uh, I'm a happy guy. But, but during it, it's just there's so much pressure on it. And, and the, you know, it's hard to budget for. Like, they're, they're just, they're very expensive. They're time consuming. They're stressful. And I think we're the kind of guys that like to get shit done. But when you go through these these civil aviation authorities and these DARs, it you lose control of that. And and you know if you're the type of person that that likes to get stuff done, you gotta just you gotta settle down and you gotta let these projects sort of run their course. You know, I mean they they take years. Is there, uh, I guess, one organisation if you can get it approved by them? Does that in Australia or New Zealand or you know South Africa oh. or anywhere else that they then accept that? Yeah. yeah, no. So I mean, that's a good question too. Like you're right. I mean, we start with Transport Canada, and then you know we have a bilateral with the FAA. We've also got an agreement with uh, EASA, uh, so you can start to you can start to branch out on these international approvals. But you also have other countries that will accept a Transport Canada or an FAA. Approval. So, I mean, we've got systems flying in South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, and and those would be based on the FAA approval. So, not not all of these countries have we gone and obtained, uh, you know, their their civil aviation uh, approval. Uh, we could have an, an FAA or Transfer Canada accept it at face value. Also, YASA, we've been working on YASA for five years now, and there's a there's a classic article that was put out, I want to say about five years ago, from Air Zermatt and Gerald Beener. And he was quoted, he was quoted saying something along the lines that IASA is the worst thing ever happened to aviation safety in Europe and they're worse than the Italian mafia. And he, he called right out and I, I was blown away by reading that article. But I do see where people are going sometimes with comments like that. Like, We've been we we've been very fortunate. Like I think our dealings with Transfer Canada, the FAA, as as much as sometimes they're quite time consuming, it, they've been excellent. EASA <laughs> has been challenging, but you know it's five years working on an approval where we have a bilateral agreement, but it doesn't seem to um, mean much when it goes this way. You know when it comes the other way, well everything gets stamped here for EASA, but. You know, you send something that direction, well, it gets scrutinized, and it's uh, it's been challenging. So, <laughs> sounds like. Uh, in the meantime, yeah, in the meantime, I mean, we we've uh, we've been working in China. We've obtained uh, a CAC approval in China. We're we're the only company with approved HEC equipment in China. It's crazy. I mean, we had to bring uh, their civil aviation department to Canada, and they spent spent eight days here uh, in Canada going through uh, our aircraft, our documents, grilling our engineer. And people are often 
very hesitant, I think, about sharing engineering uh, data with China. But I must say, they were a pleasure to, to work with. You know, these, uh, I think we've been pleasantly surprised working with these, you know, international aviation authorities have been, been awesome. Uh, it's just, we've been struggling a little bit with, uh, with Europe, actually. If we just shift to insurance, I don't know if that sort of intersects with either you know the equipment you guys have or the, just the, the HEC in general. Mm-hmm. How does yeah what, what, you know does that blow out premiums? Is it uh, you know a oh. one-off type thing? Yeah. How does that the insurance side of the of it work? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's uh, I know I, in your email you, you said we were going to talk about insurance, and you know that that got me thinking about it a little bit and it's it's always a hot topic we just try and over insure as much as possible and you you pay through the nose for this insurance and and then you hope that if you ever need it it's going to be there for you so that's and, for you guys as uh, the I, equipment designer but what about also like the, the operators well, doing it both so i mean that's it right and, and often there's that uh there's got to be that link, right? Where obviously our, our operators need to have the appropriate insurance. Um, often we could be listed on the operator's insurance policy as, as a training provider, but that seems to be how we all do it is that we all just over insure ourselves. And then we hope uh, if anything happens that that's all going to be in place. But a lot of this falls on the operator. So, so that's true um, that, you know, they're going to be the first one that's looked at and then it's going to go down the line. And if, if their company can pass the buck to us, well, they're going to do that. Right. So it seems like to go down the line until they find the, the weak link. And honestly, insurance companies never refuse to take your money. They just will refuse to cover you. So, we've been dealing with this a lot where there's a lot of companies operating uh, HEC or hoist operations where there's unapproved equipment being used. And believe me, that's where the buck stops. So it's all fine and dandy uh, until there's an accident. But once there's an accident and that investigation happens, the minute they'll, they find something that is, that is unapproved, and it allows them to to not cover you. Well, that's 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 the way they operate, right? And that's how they're still in business. These insurance companies. So cool. All right. Well, not um, to not to end on that time. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's just one of those. It's just one of those things that, especially here in Australia, like there's less and less uh, underwriters, I guess. And yeah, we're we're seeing an increase in premiums just in, in, in general. Oh. No, well, you're right. And here too, like, like here too, it's insane. I mean, you know, the, the insurance companies are coming out and saying, look at if, if you guys have any more accidents, like there's gonna be no insurance for you. And I mean, typically maybe it's heli skiing. I mean, heli skiing is a bad one for accident rates here in, in Canada. And, you know, the insurance companies are saying, look at, you know, you guys are in the global market, the insurance market, the, the, the helicopter industry is such a small percentage of their finances yet 
it's the biggest payouts for them, right? So it, it, it carries the most risk for the insurance companies as well. So the, there is a ton of pressure on the insurance industry here in, in, in the rotary world. All right, Jeff, well, we might start to wind that up for time, but yeah, is there anything we haven't covered that you really want to get the message out on in terms of the equipment or just HEC in, in general? Well, you know, I mean, the, the one thing you had in there was, was regulation. And I think that's a, that's an interesting one. If you have time. Still. Yeah, no, let's, let's launch into it. Yeah. So, I mean, the FAA, uh, they have their HEC uh, requirements are, are listed under 27865 or 29865. And that, that lays out all of their HEC requirements. Transport Canada, EASA, a lot of aviation authorities around the world base their requirements on the FAA's requirements. And, you know, when we ran into trouble here back in 2012 with transport, this was directly what they were looking at was, was FAA requirements. So we built a system that met uh, all of the FAA requirements. But the funny thing was that in the United States, nobody, well, very few people were actually flying uh, approved equipment in the United States. So here we were in Canada really busting our ass to meet these FAA requirements. But when we looked across the border at the beginning, there wasn't a huge market for our dual hook systems because guys could pick up an unapproved belly band and, and fly that at a fraction of the cost. But I think slowly the FAA started looking across the border uh, and seeing that, you know, there's approved options available. They looked at their own regulations and like, well, wait a minute. Like, this is actually what we require. We built, you know, we made these HEC requirements. And so, I mean, the shit really hit the fan there a couple of years ago uh, with these portable safety devices not being approved and the FAA sort of stepping in and grounding everybody. And, you know, unfortunately, some people thought it was easier to sort of blame us for, for that happening, but it, it, uh, it was really the FAA looking at what was happening here and realizing that it was time to clamp down because the, the growth in the HEC industry has been huge, mainly in the powerline world. But you look around at the amount of people doing HEC in, in, in the United States and it's, it's huge and it's growing exponentially. So, I mean, they clamped down and they required basically approved hooks. But the funny thing was they, they didn't really look at the soft goods yet because I think they were so overwhelmed with just dealing with the hook systems and making sure that, that operators are flying compliant hooks, they hadn't gotten to the, to the soft goods or the long lines, the harnesses. And, you know, it's just getting there now. And we're sort of going through that second wave in the U.S. with operators having to apply for exemptions to continue flying their unapproved long lines and harnesses. And, you know, we're, we're working through that uh, you know, as we, we do have FA approved harnesses, long lines and, and everything that we're, we're trying to provide to operators that are interested, but it, it's just a, it's a big switch, right? From being able to grab any harness out of the back of your truck and go fly versus having to, to, to use an aviation part essentially. And they could be the identical harnesses, except one comes with a, a form one approving it as an aviation harness. The other is just a random harness as far as the FAA is concerned. So, you know, the, the, there'll probably be some changes 
where maybe there'd be a bit more flexibility added to these soft goods because you know everybody knows that it's not a a safety issue necessarily it's a paperwork issue so so we know guys are, are operating safely but again you know you come back to that insurance side of things when something happens and you put the paper on the table well on one of them you're missing a whole lot of paperwork right so um you know we're, we're seeing people around the world also looking across sort of what's happening with the faa and and approved soft goods and, and i mean of course this translates over to hoist operations as well right where we touched on that earlier you could have an approved hoist but what's going on the end of that hoist is, is that approved and it is required to be it just may or may not be and i think that we're seeing that change now where other people are coming forward and you know the industry as a whole is is growing and people are motivated to use and to provide more approved parts here so I think it's good for everybody. No dramas. Yeah, look, it's definitely things are tightening up. And I can imagine I'm seeing the harnesses that we have for, for other operations that they're all serial tracked, they're lifed, they're serviced periodically. Uh, and I guess that's the, the difference between going and grabbing a, a harness off the rack. Yeah. No. And I mean, you know, we, we see that though too. Like, I'm not trying to flag the guys. Like, you, it's not, I, and I am, I guess, by saying you grab it out of the back of a pickup, but that's, it does happen, but it's the minority, right? But you could still have a harness that's tracked. Like the linemen are very aware of, of their equipment that they're using and they may track it themselves. But what you're missing is the operator is not tracking it. And, and we touched on this earlier where the operator is responsible, right? So this all comes back on the helicopter operator. And if you have guys like flying in a, unapproved harness on the end of your long line well who's going to be responsible when the shit hits the fan well it's the it's the operator and so it's it's exposing operators here to that risk and you often things when things go well it's never a problem but i mean when things go sideways and you realize that there's there's unapproved parts in there that's when you you really you don't have a leg to stand on jeff where can folks go to see photos of uh of the kit well um you know it's funny there's just a a new tv series just got released here in in canada and it's uh it's on it's on north shore rescue but it almost feels like it's a boost promotional uh series because the amount of uh the amount of boost product in there is crazy but that's on the Knowledge Network. They have a website, and and they've just uh, at KnowledgeNetwork.ca. But they've started running these these shows every Tuesday night now, and it's here in uh, on the west coast of Canada. It's kind of taken off as uh, the the latest and greatest TV show. So it's uh, and it's pretty exciting for us just because the amount of our equipment that's in there and and the longline rescues that are happening and the footage that they've captured is phenomenal. But of course, you could go to our website at boostsystems.ca and we've got you know all our products there there's photos there's information everything you need yep and if they ring the, the number on the on the website that pretty much goes straight to you yeah yeah you bet awesome all right well look uh yeah if anyone's in the market i guess i can uh, track you down but for the rest of us uh it's just as, as you said before it's every time you learn a little bit more about someone else's job or 
where it intersects. It just, uh, yeah, helps give some context and, um, it's cool. Next time we see videos of that stuff happening, got a, got a little bit of an idea of what happens in the, in the background. Yeah. No, thanks, Nick. Yeah. I think you're a few hours ahead of us there. So I'll let you get on uh, with your day and, and thanks so much for, for jumping on the rotary wing show with us. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Nick. Really appreciate it. If you missed it at the start, you were just listening to Jeff Yarnold, who is VP of Operations at Boost Human External Cargo Systems. For any of these episodes, and this one is no different, I've got photos and videos up on the, the blog posts that go along with what you've just heard. So you can go along to rotarywingshow.com. And for this particular one, you look up episode 92. But you can also see all the other episodes there. If you normally listen while you're driving and are out for a walk, you might be interested to see what the guests look like. You can normally find links there to related websites. For example, if you click through to the North Shore Rescue Group's website from there, or you can actually go look them up direct at northshorerescue.com. And if you want specs on the HEC equipment that Jeff was talking about, or you have questions there direct for Jeff, you can hit him up at boostsystems.ca. If you have any feedback on the episode or questions for Jeff about human external cargo, drop a, a comment on the bottom of the blog post. I'll follow those up for you and get you some answers. It is December 2020 as we go to air. And in some sad news, since our last episode, Dennis Kenyon has passed away in the UK. Dennis was an amazing pilot, well known for his airshow routines and for being a, a lovely chap. He was also very approachable and just like many of these people, just so humble for someone with so much experience. There is a, a tribute thread up on uh, PPRINT, uh, the forum there. If you look at underneath Rotorheads, you can see some comments from other people at New Dennis. Dennis was a, a guest on this show back on episodes 14 and 15, talking about display flying. I was also really I guess lucky enough to record a live webinar with Dennis, which is up on YouTube in addition to those two episodes. So if you are on YouTube and search for Dennis Kenyon live recording helicopter display pilot, so it's Dennis Kenyon live recording helicopter display pilot, you'll find that webinar there on YouTube. If you've never seen video of one of his display flights, you really should track it down with so MD500 ones or the Hughes 269. It's just amazing to, to see him in action and how smoothly a helicopter can be put through its different maneuvers. Dennis will be very much sadly missed. This episode was made possible by the support of the, the following people. Our honor roll today is Heath, Gareth, Peter, Rendell, Chris, Brent, AJ, Tony, Jason, Michael, Hal, John, Kevin, Michael, Jeff, Mark, Shannon, Jake, Eric, Carolyn, Bill, Mike, BT, Nikolai, and Alidar. Thank you so much. It is hugely appreciated. I may have some employment instability coming up, so that help covering the show expenses is a, a massive boost. Uh, if you want to help out and you've been listening, you can check that out at rotarywingshow.com forward slash support, or you can search on Patreon for Rotary wing show that was a, a big break since the last episode i know but i've got two more episodes or interviews ready to go on the hard drive i just need to finish those off 
So stay tuned shortly for one on carburetor icing and one on aerial news coverage over Los Angeles. Stay safe out there and looking forward to coming back and sharing these with you very, very soon. Yeah.